Do you want to learn more about the latest science in reproductive medicine? Explore content from the Fertility and Sterility family of journals, including the newest journals, FNS Reviews, FNS Science, and FNS Reports, all included in your ASRM membership. For even more content, follow Fertility and Sterility on social media, listen to the FNS On Air podcast, and participate in the Journal Club Global and FNS webinar series. To learn more about the Fertility and Sterility family of journals and its multimedia content options, visit fertstert.org. That's F-E-R-T-S-T-E-R-T dot O-R-G. Welcome to ASRM Today, a podcast that takes a deeper dive into the current topics in reproductive medicine. I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and today on the show, we are talking about PGT. Here to guide us in our discussion is Dr. Richard Paulson. Dr. Paulson is Alia Tutor Chair in Reproductive Medicine, Professor and Vice Chair, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology, Chief Division of Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility, Keck School of Medicine, University of Southern California. On top of all of that, he is also the Editor-in-Chief of FNS Reports. Dr. Paulson, thank you so much for coming on ASRM today. Well, thank you very much for having me, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. So for our listening audience to refresh them, or maybe even to inform them for the first time, what exactly is PGT? Well, PGT stands for pre-implantation genetic testing, and uh, basically it refers to an analysis of the DNA of the pre-implantation human embryo. And then uh, uh, we'd subdivide PGT into uh, the reason that it is being done. Uh, arguably, pre-implantation genetic testing was initially done and was tried specifically to try to rule out heritable diseases. So PGT, what we call M now, PGT-M for monogenic disease, is a way of testing the embryo to see if it carries a particular disease or not in order to avoid passing that on to the next generation. What that evolved into then was testing for aneuploidy because it turns out that a lot of human embryos are not euploid. And if they are aneuploid, then they would either have the ability to produce an abnormal child or more commonly, they don't implant or they cause miscarriages. And so PGTA for aneuploidy is pre-implantation genetic testing to test whether the embryo has the correct uh, genetic complement. We previously talked on ASRM today uh, last, well, not, well, January of 2022. This episode's coming out in January 2023. We talked with Dr. James Griffo last year about PGTA. Why does there appear to be such a controversy on this topic? Right. And uh, and the answer, of course, is, is that we don't have all the information. And, uh, and once we have that information, then the controversy presumably will disappear. What happens when you don't have enough data is that people fill in the blanks and different people fill in those blanks differently. They interpret the underlying reality in a slightly different way. And then they become invested in that particular explanation of reality. And then, of course, you get into cognitive dissonance because doctors are human beings and we become invested in our explanation of the world. And when data comes in and that is contrary to the way that we view the world, we may not, in fact, most often do not, change our mind immediately to uh, say, oh, I was wrong, obviously, uh, I, I need to uh, view the world differently. And so that's why we have controversy. 
And really the controversy with PGTA is primarily with whether it is harmful or not, or what degree of harm it causes. And uh, this is, of course, where I disagree with some of the people that uh, that are great enthusiasts for PGTA and those who think that it should be done for all people, which I think it should not be. And uh, um, and so I'm very happy to discuss all of that. I think it is fair to say that there are three groups of people uh, or groups of thought, if you will, on, on viewing PGTA. And I, at the one uh, extreme uh, is a group of, uh, of investigators who think that PGTA is inherently flawed and it will never work. It will never provide useful information because the inherent physiology of the pre-implantation embryo is such that you cannot do a biopsy of the trophecta derm and obtain any useful information. I am not in that group. At the other end, you have people who are very enthusiastic about PGTA, who feel that the science is basically finished, uh, that uh, doing an embryo biopsy is harmless, and that the information that you get from the genetic testing is 99% accurate. And I am not in that group either. I believe that we are somewhere in between, uh, that uh, the information clearly is useful, and it, and it can improve implantation rates, but that there are very obvious losses that are associated with PGTA. And those losses are quite tolerable uh, in some instances and not so tolerable in others. And by losses, by the way, I mean losses of potential embryo implantation. And a very good way to think of pre-implantation genetic testing is, is it's basically an embryo selection tool. So we all agree on this. Okay, so the, the embryo is not improved by doing an embryo biopsy. Uh, PGTA doesn't uh, make the embryo stronger or more likely to implant inherently. All it does, it selects those embryos that have a better uh, possibility of implanting. And so it's analogous to purification. And I would argue that all purification uh, is associated with some sort of procedural losses. So, uh, for example, I like the example of panning for gold. So if you go out and, uh, and you uh, dig up a bunch of dirt uh, someplace near a gold mine, let's say you come home and you have a bag that's filled with dirt that has 50% gold. And uh, you see where I'm going with this, because the analogy, of course, is, is that the baseline of untested embryos, let's say, has a 50% implantation rate, okay? And so I am going to say, well, why don't you give me uh, your uh, gold dust and I will purify it for you and I'll give it back to you with a higher proportion of gold. So you're going to say, well, that's great. That I would like that. But the important question that you're going to ask me is, well, how much am I going to lose in that process? Because when you get rid of the dirt, you're probably going to throw away some of my gold. So I want to know exactly how much is gone. So we'll come back to that in a little bit because the magnitude of those losses can be estimated from the data that we have available for PGTA. Oh, I'm sorry, that, that, that's that's why I'm, I'm curious then about the word that comes to mind for me is is appropriate. You know, what what is... Uh, here and when we get into statistics and data and, and into this gray area that you're talking about, that you feel like it is still an undefined term, right? Somewhere in between PGTA and PGTM, you know, what, in your professional opinion, then in, in, in all of your years of experience and, and study, I mean, what, 
is there a an appropriate level of loss like you're talking about here? I mean, I I love the gold analogy, but is there is there anything more concrete? Yeah, well, first of all, I think that those losses are different in different kinds of situations. And the loss rate, as you appropriately point out, that you're willing to tolerate is going to be different depending on what it is you're trying to eliminate. If you're trying to eliminate some horrible disease and you're losing, let's say, 50% of your implantations, that may very well be worth it. Uh, the couple who says, well, I don't want to have to do a termination. We have an autosomal dominant disease that has a 50% chance of being present in the baby. And we cannot or don't want to have a termination of pregnancy. Therefore, we would like to use PGTA. And now I and there a young couple has a lot of embryo. And I'm going to say, okay, well, this will will lose 50% of potential implantations. Plus, of course, we'll lose half of the embryos that are going to be affected. That's still worth it. If they started out with 12 embryos uh, and, and we lose you know, half and then another half, so that's still three, that's perfectly good. So the situation that really drives it is how many embryos do you have and how bad is the disease that you're trying to eliminate? So uh, the other example of, uh, of purification that I've used has been, uh, you know, uh, alcohol distillation, because maybe uh, my colleagues are more used to, but they have a background of organic chemistry or biochemistry. And, and, and when you try to distill ethanol and try to make whiskey out of your, your moonshine, out of your uh, bad wine or something like that, you know that all of the alcohol that you started with at the beginning is not going to end up in your whiskey at the end. So you're going to try to go from 10% to maybe 50% or maybe slightly higher on your distillate. Uh, but you know there's going to be evaporation and there's going to be uh, alcohol that's left over. And those are the ones that you're going to lose. So that is the that's the bottom line. And, and it really uh, bothers me when I hear the enthusiasts for PGTA say, no, we are not losing anything. You are losing things, and it's not very hard to find the numbers. So I, I hate to pick on eGenomics uh, because I think they're, they're perfectly good people, but they advertise on their website that for women uh, at, at the, under the age of 35, they are able to increase the implantation rate from 50% to 60% as a result of PGTA. And the aneuploidy rate in this group, by the way, is listed as 40%. And that's all you need to calculate what the losses are. That's what I'm trying to say. So remember how I said that the gold was 50% of your original dirt, okay? So you started off with 50% with gold in your one kilogram bag. So you have 500 grams of gold. And now you're going to give it to me. I'm going to purify it for you. And I'm going to give you back. And I a bag, and I'm going to say it's much better now. It's 60% gold, right? Because I view embryo implantations, embryos that make babies, as the gold in all of the product that we have. Okay, so maybe others don't see it that way, but I see it that way. But how much are you going to get back? How much less are you going to get back? Well, the aneuploidy rate is 40%. So that means we throw away 40% of the original bag. So you started off with 1,000 grams. You're going to get back 600 grams, right? I throw away 40% for the aneuploidy. And the 600 grams that's left is going to have 60% purity. So switching to embryos now, that means that at the beginning, we had 100 embryos. They had 50% chance. They had 50 babies in that group. Now we've thrown away 40% of the embryos. We're down to 60 embryos. Those embryos are implanting at a 60% rate, much higher than the 50%. Much higher, 60%, much better than 
60% of implantations out of 60 embryos is 36 embryos. So we've lost from 50 down to 36 embryos. We lost 14 embryos. What percent loss is that? Well, out of 500, 14 out of 50 is 28 out of 100. That's 28%. That is a 28% loss of implantation, okay? So I've tried to have this conversation with some of the more enthusiastic proponents of PGTA, and they say, no, 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 no. You're not looking at it right. You're, what about all those extra embryo transfers that you're doing and all that other kind of stuff that's going on? And the answer is yes, that is a valid counter argument. It is valid to say it is worth it to lose 28% of your implantations in order to have fewer embryo transfers, make it easier for the patient, you, let's say, want to transfer the blastocyst into a surrogate. She does not uh, want to think, she wants maximum implantation rate, doesn't want to be thinking about the other stuff. But please acknowledge the fact that the process just lost you 28% of the implantations. And there's this calculation can be done on any of the other studies. For example, the high watermark was the STAR trial, uh, which demonstrated a 50% loss of implantations. Uh, the uh, the eugenomics I just told you is about 28%. If you want to say, can we have an, a can we agree on a on a conservative estimate? I'm happy to to have a conservative estimate of let's say 20% losses. Okay, we're going to say that we we're so advanced now and we have a really good lab, we're going to lose 20%. So where are those losses? So those losses are from two points. Okay, so there there's trauma from the biopsy. And, uh, and there's false positives. And so, so let's take each of those individually. So the biopsy, they say, well, the biopsy doesn't cause any trauma. And there's a Richard Scott paper. It was just great. I can, I can in my mind, envision those two bars standing side by side. One group was biopsied and transferred, and the other group was not biopsied, and they're exactly the same implantation rate. That was done in very good prognosis patients. They were all under 35. All of those blastocysts were four AAs, and those blastocysts were transferred less than three hours after the time of the biopsy. So apparently, if you take a very young group that has very large and expanded blastocysts and you transfer without doing an intervening freeze or anything like that, uh, then that damage is so small that that particular group does not have an appreciable decrease in implantation rate. But there, there is very obviously, very obviously, losses due to the trauma from the biopsy. For example, the if you take uh, a, an optimal group like, uh, like recipients of egg donation, and you do PGTA on those embryos, uh, it is very difficult to show an increase in implantation rates. The implantation rates are essentially the same with and without PGTA in an egg donor model. And the degree of aneuploidy is variable. Some places have 20, 30% aneuploidy rates. Uh, you throw those embryos out. So you take out all the aneuploid embryos, presumably, and now you should have an increase in implantation rates, but you don't. Why is there not an increase in implantation? To me, that is transparently due to the fact that you have decreased the potential implantation rates of the remaining embryos as a result of the biopsy. So they might have implanted at a 90% rate, but the biopsy knocks them back down to the 60% that you started with uh, at the beginning. So I think it's very clear that the biopsy does cause that. 
And, and if you want to imagine what the embryo looks like, you know, I like the analogy to the soccer ball, the soccer ball. And unfortunately, that analogy has morphed into sort of the black and white sections of the of the soccer ball representing mosaic and normal areas. And I don't know that that's I don't think that's correct anymore. That was my impression at some point. But the soccer ball has a specific shape and uh, uh, it is that shape resembles a naturally occurring molecule of carbon, uh, which is a C60 molecule. And, and uh, Buckminster, Buckminster Fuller described it, and it's called a buckyball. It looks like a soccer ball with the, with the 32 faces of pentagons and hexagons. And the reason that nature makes that structure is because it is very energetically favorable. It is a low energy state. So as the blastocyst expands, it will of course conform to a shape that is as low energy as possible. That's why it's round and not square. <laughs> That's why, and not ovoid. And it will have that shape on the outside. Now a soccer ball has 32 faces. And by the time we're doing biopsies, we're probably at 120 or, or possibly even, even larger number of, of uh, blastomeres. So imagine then in your mind's eye that you're taking the, the, the soccer ball, and you're going to remove one of those faces, okay? Because that phase represents the four cells that you're going to want to send to the biopsy. How much damage do you think you're doing to the surrounding cells that are all attached to it? Do you see how we must be damaging all of the other cells that are around there? How the laser energy that is used or has been used in the past to separate that is likely to cause DNA changes and other sorts of nefarious things that happen. So the, the biopsy is not perfect and uh, has changed over the last five years as I've been seeing this, and it is not perfect. It wasn't perfect five years ago when I was told that PGTA was perfect, and it's not perfect now. I hope that we can figure out some sort of non-invasive way of going about it, but at the present time, we're stuck with the biopsy. So the non-invasive way, so we're talking about camps here, right? We've got different people with different ideas about what's acceptable and you know and, and what's not is 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 the non-invasive then in your opinion you're saying then that the non-invasive is is the way to find the middle ground or to bring these camps together to to come to a to a much more data driven maybe or you know some sort of different conclusion to push PGTA forward the best thing that ever came out of the non invasive testing where you're testing the spent culture media is that everyone recognizes the imperfect nature of those data. So you only get a reading maybe 70, 80% of the time. There's a bunch of readings where you don't get anything. And everyone is very concerned that the DNA that's being sloughed into the culture media is not as accurate or it is not reflective of the DNA that's actually in the cells. And so as a consequence, everyone agrees that that is not a diagnostic modality. Everybody says, oh, all you can do with that is to prioritize and do you transfer these embryos first and transfer those embryos second, but no one is suggesting that you should discard embryos on the basis of non-invasive pre-implantation genetic testing. That's very different from the fact that they're perfectly willing to discard embryos on the basis of a biopsy of the trophectoderm. So that's the one positive thing. But no, uh, I do not think that at the present time, the accuracy, false negatives and false positives associated with non-invasive PGTA, which is to say you're, you're isolating DNA from the culture media, that it is really ready to be used in a, in a meaningful uh, clinical way. 
So let's just say a little bit more about the false positive testing because uh, Richard Scott's uh, non-selection uh, study really implied that when you have purely unemployed embryos, that you get 0% babies. And of course, I'm familiar with that study and uh, Richard's been doing uh, PGTA for a very long time. Uh, and certainly that database implied that there was uh, that there was a 0% implantation rates. But most of us live in the real world where we have to send our embryo biopsies to commercial labs. There's a great paper in, uh, must be this month's Fertility and Sterility, which shows different euploidy and aneuploidy rates in different labs. And what they did is they took embryos from donor derived from donor eggs so that there was a consistency and a constancy uh, that you would expect physiologically. And the labs varied in the euploidy rate from a high of 73% to a low of 52%. And then aneuploidy rates, because then they're always in between, you've got the sort of the intermediate, the intermediate copy number and so on, were from 14% to 32%. So that is not possible, right? So physiologically, you do not have 14% aneuploidy in one lab and 32% aneuploidy in another lab. They're not different donors. There's not, they're not different human beings. They're not doing anything different. That is noise in the system. That is noise in the system. And of course there's noise in the system. This is a very complicated, sophisticated test you don't think that there's a difference in the way that one person does the embryo biopsy, and you don't think there's a difference in the way that the lab analyzes it. And so, of course, there's a big difference. And that is what I'm talking about when I say there is noise. And as a consequence, there has got to be false positive testing. So one of them is wrong. The fact that the pregnancy rates seem to be the same in these labs, actually the labs that had the lowest aneuploidy rates, that is to say the highest proportion of embryos that they returned back to you were also associated with higher pregnancy rates. But the, the point is, is the lab that told you to throw away 32.8% of the embryos is giving you different information than the lab that says you should throw away 14.2% of those embryos. And that has got to be false positive. Uh, we're almost out of time, Dr. Paulson. What would you like our listeners to take away from this today? Is there something to think about moving through 2023 and beyond? Or what, what, what would you like your take-home message to be? I would like for all of us to be honest with one another about what we do and do not know. We do not know and we do not understand the physiology of the pre-implantation human embryo. We do not know if the trophectoderm has some inherent different physiology from the inner cell mass. We haven't done correlation studies between the inner cell mass and the trophectoderm. We can acknowledge that we have a tool that appears to be useful. We should understand that it's not perfect, that we do lose potential implantations, which may be greater in some cases and lower in others, and then factor in those losses into counseling. So, for example, the recipients of egg donation have lots and lots of embryos. If there's lots of embryos, then we don't mind losing 20% of potential implantations. And the patients appreciate having the reassurance that they've done everything that they can. Some are preoccupied with the gender of the embryo. That's not a problem. But if somebody has only a few embryos, if you have a 42-year-old who's making three or four eggs per retrieval, 
why would you subject that patient to pre-implantation genetic testing and not simply transfer those embryos in a fresh state? Or what about somebody who has fertility preservation and she preserved a finite number of eggs because before her chemotherapy, she froze six or seven eggs. Do, are, do you need to thaw those eggs out and do blastocyst culture and, and embryo biopsy, PGTA analysis, a second freeze on those eggs? I'm not sure that that makes sense. And I'm concerned that what is what goes under the guise of, oh, controversy, oh, I get this all the time. Oh, Rick, I just don't agree with you. Okay, if you don't agree with me, then tell me why. What is my math wrong? What part of this do you not agree with? And and they just look at me and say, no, I, you, I just don't agree with you. And that's the end of the conversation. And that is incorrect scientifically. We should be able to, to acknowledge, look, I see it this way and you see it that way. And, and that is that will, I think, eliminate the concept of the of the controversy that is associated with PGTA. And I think it is getting better and it will be better. Uh, and I actually think that pre-implantation genetic testing is a very good idea. We should be testing these embryos before we put them back into our patients. They deserve to have that knowledge and we should work on getting it for them. My guest today has been Dr. Richard Paulson. We've been talking about PGTA. I, I've got to have you back uh, as soon so we can we can continue this discussion because there is of course so much more to talk about with PGT just as a as a as a as a, uh, a wide area of topic. Thank you so much for being able to take time out today to be on the show. My pleasure, Jeff. Anytime. I really enjoy the podcast. By the way, I am an avid listener. Well, thank you so much. And uh, if uh, or if anybody who's listening to this episode would like to also become an avid listener, you can subscribe, rate uh, the show through Apple, Google, or whatever podcatcher uh, that you use. Until next time, I'm Jeffrey Hayes, and this is ASRM Today. This concludes this episode of ASRM Today. For show notes, author information, and discussions, go to asrmtoday.org. This material is copyrighted by the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and may not be reproduced or used without express consent from ASRM. ASRM Today series podcasts are supported in part by the ASRM Corporate Member Council. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of ASRM and its affiliates. These are provided as a source of general information and are not a substitute for consultation with a physician.